Amen. Well, thank you guys for being here this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, uh, please turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2 this morning. Um, Pastor Justin, in my absence last week, kicked off a new sermon series um, working through the book of Acts. And typically we work kind of word for word, line by line through a book of the Bible. It usually takes us several years. We're going to do a little bit different this time through the book of Acts. We're going to work kind of in bigger sections and and chunks of Scripture. So it's going to be very important for you to kind of read ahead, read along, and to be with us as we dive into this idea that God is the unstoppable God. The word unstoppable means incapable of being stopped. Synonyms for this word means and include the bulletproof, insurmountable, invulnerable, unbeatable, unconquerable, and invincible. God, there is but one God. He is infinite. He is eternal. He is almighty. He is perfect in holiness. He is perfect in truth and love. In the unity of the Godhead, there's three persons. This is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He's coexistent, co-equal, co-eternal. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, yet each is Truly deity, God, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the foundation of the Christian faith and life. God the Father, God the the Father is the creator of heaven and earth. By His word and for His glory, He freely and supernaturally created the world out of nothing. Through this same word, He daily sustains all His creation. He rules over it and together with the Son and the Spirit is the only sovereign. His plans and purposes cannot be thwarted. He is faithful to every promise, works all things together for the good of those who love Him. And His unfathomable grace gave His Son, Jesus Christ, for mankind's redemption. He made all things for the praise of His glory and intends for man in particular to live in fellowship with Himself. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the God, the Godhead is the only unstoppable God. As we saw from Pastor Justin last week in kicking off this idea that as Jesus stated from the cross, it is finished. This this is the meaning of the atoning sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus upon the cross for God's children. And though he said this, this does not mean that in all things God is done, that he is finished, but that it is also simultaneously really a a launching pad for us to not just come to the cross and end and come to the resurrection and end, but from there we go forth living out this mission that God has called the church to do. As we live forth with this unstoppable God in His mission, not creating our own, but developing and being a part of God's mission, we take the gospel message of Jesus Christ, what He did upon the cross, what He did through the power of the resurrection, and we take this idea to the ends of the earth. See, it wasn't really until the resurrection of Jesus um, that all of his earthly ministry really began to come into focus, even for his most committed of followers. Though they had known him, though they had spent time with him, though they had learned from Jesus, it was at the resurrection that it really changed them. This ragamuffin group of misfits were, were ready to, at all costs, to now follow after this rabbi, this teacher, this Lord, this Savior, to follow every command. See, by now, they really trusted every word that came from Jesus' mouth. See, remember early on in the Gospels of Jesus, um, he, he tells them, hey, one of you is going to be betray me. And in that scene, what happens? Nah, Jesus, here he goes again. And what happens? Judas did. He, he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, you're going to deny me. And what does G- Peter say? He says, there's no way, Peter, that I would ever, ever deny you. And what happens to Peter? 
he denies him. He says, I'm going to die. Nah, Jesus, you're not going to die. I'm going to be resurrected on the third day. There's no way that you're going to be resurrected on the third day. And yet, he did and said all of these things. There is no more guessing about Jesus and who he is and what Jesus says after they see him and his resurrected form. If he said it was going to happen, they could count on this being true. He told them to go wait last week in the early um, chapters of, or chapter 1 of the book of Acts. He told them to go and wait in Jerusalem. And that in waiting in Jerusalem, that eventually the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, would come and in power them. And what would be the fruit of the Holy Spirit coming? They would be His witnesses. What is a witness? A witness is a person who proclaims the good news of Jesus. And so as we move from Acts chapter 1 now into Acts chapter 2, let's look at the first few verses here as we comb through this chapter. It says this, When the day of Pentecost arised, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, when we look into this scene, um, it's, it's very important that we see here that they were all together when? On the day of Pentecost. Now, the word Pentecost means 50. The word Pentecost means 50. It was a huge Jewish celebration, and it was a part of their culture for now thousands of years. It was called the, the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Weeks. This was a big deal in early Judaism. It was uh, a day that was supposed to take place 50 days after Passover. Now, real easily here, we could just kind of skip over this, but if I think we do, we really miss some valuable lessons and points that Jesus is about to reveal about himself through this. So 50 days after Passover is Pentecost for the Jews. It was, again, it was a celebration of God's harvest, that he had given provision. It actually took place between two harvests, and it was thanking God for all the fruits, vegetables, and growth that had come to them through that harvest in the last harvest, and it was also thanking God for the harvest that was about to come. Very similarly, it became also known as the time that they would celebrate um, the law in the Old Testament coming to Moses on Mount Sinai because it's believed that that was about 50 days after the Exodus. All right? So this was a really, really big deal. This is uh, this is Mardi Gras. This is a huge party. This is a, an awesome experience that people from all nations under the sun at that time came to Jerusalem to worship God. And, and probably like a lot of things, it became less and less about God and more about the party. But who's to say I wasn't there? But all these people are in Jerusalem and they are now worshiping God or celebrating what God has done and what God has given them. They're thanking Him for His provision. It's believed that hundreds of thousands of Jews came every year to Jerusalem for Pentecost. The city was now bustling with people and different nationalities and, and different languages are now being spoken throughout the city. It was a huge revenue, I'm sure, for the city as well. And so we can see that if Jesus, he was on the earth, the Bible tells us, 40 days after the resurrection. So we see in chapter 1, Jesus has, has been on the earth for 40 days and he tells his disciples to do what? To go to Jerusalem and to wait. So when you look at the calendar and the timeline of what's happening here, 
the, the, the disciples of Jesus that are on the hillside when he ascends to the heavens have gone back to Jerusalem and they've pretty much been chilling in a house and praying for 10 days. For 10 days. 120 followers of Jesus sat waiting, anticipating, praying. And yet in God's perfect timing, when? On the day of Pentecost. This isn't uh, something that Christians came up with. This is something that has been in Judaism for hundreds of years. And God, in His unstoppable, sovereign plan, on this specific day, when all of these people have gathered, this is not just by circumstances, this is by God's hand. It says what? A sound. The blowing of a, a violent wind came from heaven and filled the entire house where they were sitting. And, and then they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came and rest upon them. Now, as a child, when I would read this story, um, it was, I always got this picture that was probably more cartoonish than anything. That all of a sudden, these guys and these gals were sitting, probably eating at this house, hanging out. And then this big wind came and filled the house and filled the city. And I just get this picture like people like being blown down, holding on to each other, being blown all over the place. And while that's fun to imagine, that's not what the Bible says, does it? It sounds... It says that it was the sound of this mighty rushing wind. So imagine being here in this place right now and, and hearing the sounds of a hurricane, not only inside of this room, but throughout this entire city. This is the picture. Not an actual blowing, but the actual sound of this Wind. It is heard now by everyone in Jerusalem. The Bible tells us later on in the book of Acts chapter 2 that. It says like many times when, when people hear a large boom, what do they do? They go outside, right? You'll even see this in Bowling Green. I've noticed this even a few weeks ago. Um, somebody posted on their Facebook status. They're like, man, does anybody know what the large boom is going outside of my house? And people are like, yeah, we heard it too, or this or that. Um, I remember as a child being in my parents' subdivision and standing there at the kitchen window one day and hearing this loud boom and then our house shaking. And come to find out it was a factory blowing up about a mile from our house. Um, but you just remember everybody talking about it. It's like they want to know what is this sound that is going on. And so it begins to draw people. See, ladies and gentlemen, this is the sound of a new beginning in redemptive history. A reformation, a resurgence, a rebooting of what life is all about. See, in, in Genesis chapter 1, we see the Spirit of God and is hovering over the Word. I'm going to teach you some Hebrew this morning. Um, the word Spirit there in Genesis chapter 1 is, is, is the word ruah. All right, and it's you sound it, ruah. All right, is literally the sound, and is supposed to sound like the sound of breathing. See, the Spirit of God is the breath of God. In the Greek New Testament, we see this as the word pneuma. It is the once again the sound of breathing. See, God's Spirit, as He breathed into um, Adam's lips, what did it cause to happen? It caused life to come from that, those bones that were made from the dust of the earth. It caused those ribs and those blood vessels. It, it took something from death, essentially, to life. And so we see that same ruah, or that pneuma here in the New Testament, is the breath of God. So imagine we're in a small group like we are here today, and we're in a room, and God breathes His breath, His Spirit upon the people. He baptizes them in His breath. The same word here means explosion is taking place. See, God is doing something 
new here that they had never seen. It is, ladies and gentlemen, here in Acts chapter 2, it is the birth of the church. See, in the Old Testament, find the church. You don't. Even as Jesus is walking around for his three years of ministry, the church is still non-existent. It is at this moment, ladies and gentlemen, that our first forefathers within believers as, as being a part of the body of Christ, the church, is taking place. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit and the church is born. But not only were they baptized, they were also filled. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is different than being filled. Baptism happens at our salvation. But filling of the Spirit comes in a variety of different ways and has different purposes for fulfilling God's plan. Now on this specific day, there's a specific way in which He fills the church. And that is through the ability to speak in tongues. Now, I just said speak in tongues, and so if you've grown up in Southern Baptist, we're in the process of becoming a Southern Baptist church, and I just cussed, right? I mean, it's like I say speaking in tongues, I've said Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, and automatically most of the people who have gathered here today are freaking out, all right? It becomes very tough. See, it becomes very uncomfortable for us, and yet... That is what the Scripture says. Now, before I was a Christian, I grew up for 19 years of my life in a charismatic Pentecostal church. Um, and we used to take pride, right? I used to hear lots of things about this. That, man, this is, see, if you, if you have the Holy Spirit, then you speak in tongues. And if you don't speak in tongues, then you don't have the Holy Spirit, Right? wrong that's not what this says that's not what this passage says the thing is 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 maybe see i, I want to be very clear as we work through the book of acts we're going to see an unstoppable force an unstoppable god an unstoppable jesus an unstoppable holy spirit we're cool with talking about god we're cool with talking about jesus but we get a little shaky when we start talking about the holy spirit we need to pray and come to an agreement, says Mission Church, that, man, we're going to let the Holy Spirit define who He is based on what the Scripture says, even if that's a little tough for us Baptists or from those of us who are raised in a more charismatic background. We want to see what does the Bible say about who He is and how He works in our lives. But let's face it, man, there's a lot of distortion in our culture about the Holy Spirit. I could tell you right now to go to YouTube, type in certain people's names, and you will literally see people speaking in an ecstatic speech of kind of gibberish language and kicking people in the stomach in the name of Jesus to get the cancer out of them. It sounds like that's a joke. I believe it is. But the, to those thousands of people who that attracts, that is no joke for them. Is that with the Bible? I mean, anybody want to sign up for that today? Anybody got, like, allergies today, and you'll let me slap you in the name of Jesus? Right? I don't think so. Anybody got a broken arm that you'll let me, like, rip on? I remember my mom was in a neck brace one time in a charismatic church, and the guy was going to pray for healing over her, and he, like, grabbed her neck and was, like, shaking it. Guess what? It only hurt her worse. Okay? Do we see God working in powerful ways, in mysterious ways, and yet we need to see them through the lens of what the Bible says, not how I believe sin, Satan, and death has distorted who the God is, and yet simultaneously need to embrace the full power of God. See, the, this passage is not speaking uh, about speaking in tongues as a form of some sort of prayer language or groaning um, spirit within these people. Literally, you can mark out the word tongues there, and in the original language, write the word languages. Languages. Tur tongues here were not unknown languages. 
They were very much understood languages. Do we get that? I mean, this is, this is what the passage is going to tell us. It, it says that the filling of the Holy Spirit in, in this moment gave them the ability to speak in foreign languages. Why? So that they could be proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that they could be witnesses. What did he say? When the Spirit comes upon you, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be empowered to do what? To go be my witnesses. And that's what's taking place here. To those who have gathered in all of this region, verse 5 tells us, doesn't it? Um, on the next page of my Bible, um, it says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Under heaven. Do you think this was by chance? No. This is not by chance. Brothers and sisters, see, we got an amen. Somebody's awake, Oliver. Thank you, brother. Somebody's not being the frozen chosen in here, okay? Gosh, it's like, you know, trying to squeeze juice out of a tournament sometimes. All right, so we, we, when we look at this, we, we see that, that God, this, this isn't by chance that it just happens to wait till Pentecost for this to happen. This is God's sovereign plan. Before the foundations of the earth, he had it planned out. Boom, this is when I'm sending the Holy Spirit. There is a perfect time and a perfect place for God to do this. Now, here's the deal. If you've been around Mission Church, if you're guests, man, thank you guys for being here. We love guests. We love visitors. We hope that you feel at home. And if you don't have a church home, we hope that you'll consider us as being that. I know being a part of a church plan is very different than being part of a, a church that's been around for a hundred years. But if you've seen any of my writing pre-edited or listen to any of my sermons, you will quickly realize that I slaughter the English language. So I completely make up words. Um, I do not understand tenses. Um, I do not understand double negatives. Um, I, don't, I, I think I misspelled even this paragraph in my writing here. Like I, I have trouble spelling. Um, I do not understand grammar. Um, I am not hooked on phonics. I'm not snagged on phoenix. Uh, but I can, I've learned to say big words like mayonnaise, okay? So I, I, this is a, an issue. And so as you're laughing at me, making fun of me, bullies, all right? Congratulations, feel good about yourself. Because the thing is, I have a learning disability that I've had since I was in the first grade. That's why I had to do it twice, first grade. I told my, that to my daughter this last week, and she was like, what? You couldn't pass the first grade? It's like I couldn't read. I still can't, barely, all right? And, and yet, it's, it's something that is, has been a part of me. I mean, it just does not compute. And then you go to math class, and they start making X's into numbers, and I'm like, this is jacked up. X is, I don't care what X is. X isn't a number. X is a letter. That's what they just told me in English class. I mean, this is extremely... Confusing. So learning English in school was difficult. Then you get to high school. What do they make you do? You got to take two years of French or two years of Spanish. I have no idea how I passed either one of those. The teachers like me. When I was at Western, I took Russian because I spent a summer in Minsk, Belarus, which is a, a, a former part of the Soviet Union, and they speak Russian there. So I thought I'd come back and I'd learn some Russian. I'd, we'd adopt a kid one day from Russia. That was Laura and I's plan. And, and so um, I went, and I'm telling you what, I cannot speak a lick of Russian. I mean, literally my teacher at Western took me on the hallway. She was from, from Russia, and she was like, um, you do not speak very good Russian, but I like you. I give you an A. And I'm like, sovereignty. I was like, grace. I mean, I, I struggle with this. It is, again, it is something in my brain that does not make sense. So what happens on this scene is, is a bunch of misfits, not very educated men and women, 120 of them, the Holy Spirit gave in this moment, this specific moment, the opportunity and the ability to speak in a foreign language that they did not know why in order to share the gospel. 
They could not formally do this. And for this day, it doesn't even mean it's going to be there tomorrow. For this moment, while there are all of these foreign Jews around them, God equips them and empowers them with the opportunity to speak in these languages. It would be like if you speak um, Spanish, and all of a sudden I'm able to speak Spanish. And you're like, how do you do that? I'm like, well, I don't have any idea. But I can do it right now. And you're fluent in that. That is what's happening here. And yet we have the tendency to get really, this really gets distorted. It gets really ugly. It gets really messy and muddy. And yet that's, that's not what's happening here if you read the text. If you study the text, these, these dudes, these gals, man, they're speaking in these languages so that people will hear the gospel. The image that we get in Acts chapter 2 is very different from the image that we get from those who follow Jesus during his three years of ministry. See, pre-cross and resurrection, even during the, the cross, probably until they saw Jesus at the resurrection, these people are what? They're, they're timid. They're scared. They're, they're cowards. They run. All right? They show up to take Jesus. What do all the disciples do? Boom! We're, we are out of here. We are, we are running away from these people. I mean, probably um, as Jesus dies on, 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 on the day of Passover, and for those next 24 hours plus until the, Jesus is resurrected on the third day, I just imagine a group of grown men in the fetal position sucking their thumbs, thinking, man, we have missed it. And then they see the resurrected Jesus. And all things change. Think about it. 50 days earlier, we're running around scared to death. 50 days later, and they are now boldly worshiping, proclaiming. 50 days earlier, the Bible even tells us in Matthew chapter 28 that, that, that as they gathered on the hill for Jesus to ascend, it says there in Matthew 28 that some worshiped and some doubted. This is that same group of people that are now gathered inside of this small house inside of Jerusalem, probably close to the Temple Mount, and the Holy Spirit baptizes them and then fills them with a specific gift for that day to speak languages. And what do they do? They begin to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, brothers and sisters, salvation takes root in your heart. But its fruit is from your mouths. Salvation speaks. It is never silent. In verse 6 tells us that because of the loud sound that the people began to gather. And then they heard these Galileans. Galileans were, you know, they were like from Edmondson County or something. I mean, um, Muhlenberg County, right? <laughs> Sorry. That, Frank, right? Um, and, and we, we, you know, these kind of people, it's like, man, where are these people coming from? Nothing, even they said of Jesus, nothing good comes from Nazareth, right? Which would have been a part of Galilee. And so they're, they're astonished that all these foreigners are now hearing in their native tongue this talk about a Messiah. They're looking for Jesus. They're hearing in their own language from these misfits. And what do they do? They accuse them of being drunk. They accuse them of being drunk. It tells us down there at verse 13 in chapter 2. But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Now, let's see what happens. See, as, as some of the Jews began to mock the followers of Jesus, what happens? Peter. Peter. Like one of the last times we saw Peter do is ducking out behind a dumpster somewhere. Because people keep asking him, aren't you that guy that follows Jesus? And Peter's like, mm, nah, me, not this guy. I don't have anything to do with Jesus. But because he's now been baptized in the Holy Spirit, because he is part of the church, what begins to take place? The Bible tells us that, that Peter, a few weeks ago, again, denying, running away from Jesus, taking cover, stands up. 
to those who have gathered because now they've worked in ways their, their way outside and there is this mass group of people that is wondering where is this sound coming from and they begin to hear people that are kind of redneck country folk speaking into their language the gospel and they're saying that these people are drunk now the bible tells us there in those passages that what time is it some of your old translations will say it's it's the third hour um, that's also known as nine o'clock some of the translations have gone ahead and said it's it's nine o'clock now why would this have been strange I've only had a couple of friends that start drinking in the morning, okay? But specifically, to a Jew, they did not eat or drink until after 9 o'clock. Now, I want you to get this, because this is hardcore dedication. You know why they were doing from 6 until 9? They fast, they pray, and they studied the Scripture. So this was the common practice in, in Judaism, is that, man, we don't start drinking or eating or anything until after nine. We just spent three hours, is their custom, in a quiet time. When's the last time you spent three hours in a quiet time? I ain't talking about sleep either. When's the last time you spent, I mean, three hours in prayer? Then that's, I mean, it just sounds like my ADD would be screwed up, and yet... This is what we see even in, in the early Jews, and I would contend even within the early church that there's a longevity of spending time. And so Peter stands up, and they're like, man, uh, they're not drunk. It's not 5 o'clock somewhere, right? It's, it's still before, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Then he begins to preach. What does he say here? In verse 14, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let us be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what is uttered through the prophet Joel. Now, because of time this morning, we don't have time to go into every part of this prophecy. But I want you to understand here that in the prophet of Joel, he is, he's foretelling that one day God is going to do this. That in the last days, he is going to pour out his spirit as he tells us here in verse 18. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in all the heavens and the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. All of these things were foretold probably hundreds of years ago through the prophet Joel. And guess what? They've happened. You know, what's also significant about this is I believe that between the hours of Jesus' resurrection and to his ascension, you know what I think that he spent a lot of time doing? Going through the Old Testament and saying, hey guys, guess what? I'm on every page. See, we miss the continuity that's happening in these people's lives. They have finally been awakened at the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to a brand new way that all the things that they see in the Old Testament, guess what they were all pointing to? They were pointing towards Jesus. And so Peter stands up in front of a group of who? Jews from all over who probably had the Old Testament memorized. And he says, hey guys, you know that great prophet Joel? You know who he was speaking about? He was speaking about Jesus. See, the problem, or the people, they were looking for Messiah, right? They were cool with the Messiah. The Jews were looking, they'd been anticipating a Messiah. But guess what? They, they expected Jesus to come, or the Messiah, excuse me, to come one time. They expected that whenever the, 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 the Messiah came was that he would immediately set up his kingdom. That's why there was all this confusion towards Jesus. Because Jesus came, he lived. Their Messiah would never die. But Jesus died. What did he do on the third day? He was resurrected. So all of the, the truths of the Old Testament, the Passover lamb, all of these Images, the, the idea of Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice of Abraham and then looking over and seeing the ram caught by his head in a group of thorns totally made new sense. They begin to understand that David fighting the giant wasn't about Israel fighting some really bad people, that ultimately David was pointing toward an, a true and better king. His name 
is Jesus. All of the Old Testament pointing towards Jesus. Now Peter can stand up in front of a group of his colleagues and peers and say, all of this has been about him. And we are now in the last days. See, ladies and gentlemen, we have been in the last days since the resurrection of Jesus. We're in them. They have continued to go for 2,000 years. There will probably come a time when it's the last of the last days, but as of, since the resurrection, we're not anticipating the last days. We have been in the last days, and the only thing that has kept God from coming back before now is that there are many sheep who are, who are part of his flock, who are not yet a part of his fold, and he is waiting patiently, the Bible tells us in Peter, for them to be redeemed, and then what does he do? He comes. He comes. Now, when we read this, let's read together a little bit further um, in the book of, of Acts chapter 2. Let's pick up in verse 22. It says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and you killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, and he is at the right hand and, and that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul in Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and in his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him that he would not set one of his descendants on his throne. For he saw, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we have all our witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from him the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of those apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise for you and for your children, and all for who are far off, everyone who the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witnesses and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and were added to that day about 3,000 souls. So what does Peter do? This paranoid coward of a man seeing the resurrection of Jesus, now the baptism of the Holy Spirit has come. And what is his first response? Witness. Proclamation. Preaching. Which means to scream. To proclaim the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to get this very quickly. One thing that you've got to understand about Peter's message here is it is not seeker sensitive. It's not seeker sensitive at all. We have created a church culture, especially in America, where, man, we do not want to offend people. We want our, our preaching to be about nine ways to a healthy marriage or a six pack or, or, or meaning this, not this. All right, you know, whatever it is, you know, 
10 ways to feel good about yourself. We want to go to a church that just, man, we feel awesome. We're totally, unbelievably cool. I mean, we want to feel happy and all of these sorts of things. And yet, Peter isn't concerned about these people's happiness or if he's politically correct. What does he tell them? You killed this man. He just told him, you killed the Messiah. You killed the one that all the prophets foretold about. You killed him. How's that for a sinker sensitive? Right? Is that what Jesus does? Is Jesus seeker sensitive? Does he care about these people? Yes, he cares about them enough to say, man, this is, this is what you've done. This is who you are. We've created a church culture within the West that is about easy believism, a, an opportunity for us to kind of gather and just hug on one another. And yet, this isn't the sermon that Peter preaches. Part of the gospel of God is revealing who we are. Almost every sermon, I believe, should have that kind of moment where you're like, ooh, preacher got me. Ooh, has he been reading my email? Has he been spying on me? Has he been trolling my Facebook page? Every, every sermon, because when I read the gospel, man, I have this moment every time like, ooh, like you nailed me. We can't be afraid from that. We can't run from that. That's not being mad or manic depressive. That, that's being the truth. This is who we are. But I want you to know that's the truth. And yet there is the simultaneously what? The grace. The gospel is also about grace. We need both. We need the truth and we need the grace. We need not be afraid of a God who knows everything about us. He is revealing who we are. He also shows us a much more triumphant. His grace is to where you live and I live. Brothers and sisters, Jesus saves you in spite of where you are and what you have done. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We've got to learn to embrace and be okay with. I mean, could you imagine worshiping a God who doesn't know who you really are? Because the thing is, is we like to come to church or campus organizations for our college students or to a missional community group. And man, we like to really just kind of put on this face like everything's good. Like I'm a little fairy for Jesus floating around the room and life is great. And we're just big smile on our face. And the thing is, is that God knows the masquerade that we have. And it's okay for him to bust us out on that. It's okay in the preaching of the gospel, we must realize where we are and how wretched we are and compare that in view to what? The grace and the everlasting abundance of God's love and mercy that in spite of how wretched I am, God loves me in spite of those things and does not leave me there, but by His gospel, by His good news, while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. He who knew no sin became sin for me. He absorbed the wrath that I deserve. He drank the full cup of divine wrath. He has totally changed me from the inside out and is going to spend the rest of eternity of conforming to me to the light of Jesus, and I deserve absolutely none of this. If you would ask me, why are you saved? I have no idea. I have no idea. I have no idea why God chose me. I have no idea why God placed and imputed His righteousness on me. It is simply by His love and His compassion. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we must also see the great importance of preaching. We are going to see through this series a huge importance and priority on preaching. Now, this is going to sound strange because I'm the preacher. I'm going to tell you, please, please get me here this morning. This, this is not to take away from, from mission kids or, or missional community groups. This is, not, this is not to take away from our, our need to help the poor and the needy and to do social justice. This is not, not to take away from even writing checks or doing food banks for different local ministries. All of those things are important. Do you get that? 
Not dogging those things. All of those things are important. But they are secondary to the preaching of the church. To the preaching of the gospel. To the sharing and proclamation of the gospel. This is what drives us. Are you, are you hungry to go, man, this morning I get to go be preached at. I get to go be unveiled, to be revealed that the scripture is going to go, oh, that's tough. And yet, also simultaneously going to go, man, there's an abundance of grace in this room. Preaching is the most important, yet we've created a church culture where it's about the church programs and the buildings and how many butts are in the seats and how many baptisms you had and how much money you got in the bank and all these sorts of things. All those things in and of themselves aren't bad, but they are not the priority ministry of the church. It is the proclamation. It is the preaching. And we're going to build a church on preaching. I mean, there is nothing sexy and romantic about coming to a church plant. All right? Here's what we can guarantee. We're going to preach the heck out of it and be unapologetic for it. All right? Now, the thing is, some of us are called to be vocational preachers, all right? We're like the prophets. We yell, scream a lot. We get red-faced. We're passionate about Jesus. We don't want people to go to hell, all these sorts of things. And yet, church, I want you to get this mission. Please get this. This is what is missing from our um, general idea of what it means to be the local church. This is not only a responsibility of me to be a proclaimer, to be Pastor Justin, a proclaimer, but every one of us who claim to be a follower of Jesus, you are as well a preacher of the gospel. As I said earlier, salvation is never silent. It is always proclaiming, and that means that your job who says they can't share the gospel, you know what you're supposed to do? Share the gospel. In your neighborhood, even if it's weird, share the gospel. I went to somebody's house the other day. I mean, it smelled like an ashtray. It was terrible. I walked in, they're like, hi. I mean, both of them. No teeth. I mean, it's like, oh. When I came out, I was like, I've got cancer. All right? I mean, it was that bad. They asked me what I did. Mistake. On their part. Because I want you to know, I was like, well, when I was 19, <laughs> I was going to Western and Jesus saved my life. And since Jesus saved my life in the gospel and the cross and the resurrection, blah, blah, blah. I mean, as we're moving furniture, I'm like sharing the gospel with this guy. And I want you to know, in that moment, no one was like, oh, I love Jesus. But you know what? Had to do it. Because I cannot only proclaim from the stage, we must proclaim in our lives. If the Holy Spirit is here, guess what? He is. Don't be scared. The fruit of that is what? Witness. Proclamation. Proclaiming. We can either be like Peter before the cross and resurrection, denying Jesus, or we should be like Peter who stands up boldly in front of thousands of people who are claiming he's drunk and says what? Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Messiah. Jesus came to do what? To preach. How do you do that? Seeking to save the lost through his preaching, through his proclamation, through his teaching. And there's no such thing as, you ever heard these people? This is a total, total, total rabbit trail. Not in my notes. Probably get in trouble for this. There is not, you ever hear these people go, well, man, my pastor, he's a good preacher. And they'll say, well, this guy, my pastor, he's a great teacher. Did you know there's no connection of that in Scripture? Like, they're the same. Like, if you're preaching and you're not teaching, you're not preaching. You're just yelling. You're talking a lot. If you're not teaching something, those things are synonyms within the New Testament. And so we've got we to gotta see the importance of preaching, teaching. They're the same thing. They're the same thing. And we've all got to do it. We all get to do it. It is the fruit of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. Next, the, the, Peter's sermon was all about the God's sovereign redemptive plan through Jesus, wasn't it? Don't we see two worlds collide here? We see what? He tells us here earlier in these passages um, in verse 23 that this is whose plan? Whose plan? God's plan. What? This is God's sovereign plan. He planned it out to a T to kill Jesus. And yet simultaneously, where's the paradox? Who's responsible? 
God, and you killed them. You killed them. So, so God, in, these, in this passage and upon the cross, we see God's love, His mercy, His justice, His sovereign plan, and human responsibility kind of all meshed into one. But we see at the center of Peter's sermon, over and over and over and over again, we could circle it every time, the word God, Jesus, Holy Spirit. All of his sermon is about God. It is about Jesus. It is about beholding God. And that's what we do when we preach the gospel. We're like, man, behold the God. God is better better than whatever else you're chasing, whatever God you've made, small g God, God is better. Behold this God. He is great. He is mighty. Who is working in this sermon? God is working. He is the one causing all of this to happen. These people did not come to Jerusalem to be saved. Imagine, you know, going to Mardi Gras, working down Bourbon Street, and I've been there several times. It's quite a scene. You're going to Bourbon Street to see naked people and get tore. All right? Or to peer in and watch people looking at naked people and getting tore. Right? I mean, it, it's like a train wreck. It's like, man, we got we to see this. And in the midst of that, what happens? They were like, we're not going to Jerusalem to get saved. They all thought they were. They were going to Jerusalem to celebrate, to party, for a festival, to drink a lot of good wine, I'm sure. And what happens? Jesus saves them. Man, this is the power of the gospel. They came to celebrate and left transformed. What does the Bible tell us there? 3,000 people. There were 120 that morning. 120 people scared to death in a room, filled with the Holy Spirit, totally transformed. And on that day, what took place, 3,000 souls were brought into the fold. They were, they were saved. They were redeemed. They were transformed. And what's interesting about this is that, that God wasn't interested in just forming a megachurch in this one location. And there's nothing wrong with being a megachurch as long as Jesus is the center of it. Okay? But I don't want you to get this idea that all of a sudden 3,000, there was like, you know, 3,000 people that stayed in Jerusalem. Where were these people from? All over the known world. So what does the church do? They come, they're transformed, they gather together like we've done this morning, and then what is God's plan? They scatter. They go back home. We just worked through the entire book of Rome, Romans. And in that, Paul has never visited that church, Right? Yet their faith is mighty. It is unmeasurable. It is known throughout the known world. Their faith in following after Jesus. And yet Paul did not plant that church. It's believed. Where do those Roman believers come from? It's believed that the core group, the church plant of that church in Rome, were on and at the day of Pentecost. And they stayed around for a while and they learned and they, they grew and they were taught by the apostles. They were taught by others. And eventually they went from Jerusalem back home and planted Mission Church. You like that? And inside of Rome. And so now, years later, Paul is wanting to build a relationship. Why? So that he can take the gospel from them to the ends of the earth. See, God's goal isn't created a mega church in one central location. God is about the church in all locations. This is the power of the gospel. We are witnessing the birth of the church. And the birth of the church is an unstoppable force. Why? Because God is unstoppable. God tells us to go and make disciples. Guess what it doesn't say? It doesn't say go be discipled. It says go make disciples. Because what's going to happen when you're discipling someone else? You will be discipled as well. What did I tell you about the day of Pentecost? It was the day of harvest. It was the day of the coming of the law to the group of people, to the Israelites. And on this new Pentecost, on this day, there is a new harvest. There is a new coming. It is the coming 
coming of the Holy Spirit. And what is the harvest? It is not of barley and of wheat. It is of the people of God. As he is drawing men and women, boys and girls of all nations unto himself through the person and work of Jesus. If you want to see what the book of Acts is all about, it is about, ladies and gentlemen, heaven invading this earth. We must scratch away from our minds this idea that heaven is some far-fetched fairy tale land way out yonder. The goal of the gospel, the goal of heaven, is to constantly for heaven to be coming to this earth and in some small way giving us glimpses to what it's going to be like for all of eternity. That's why we gather like this. That's why we gather in missional community groups. That's why we sing. That's why we pray. That's why we give. All of these things are small glimpses into what eternal, perfect heaven will be like. The church is important. That's what's happening here. And the church is proclaiming. It still is. I want you to know that being a being a member of a church doesn't make you a Christian. No more, as they say, going into a garage makes you a car. But I want you to get this. True believers in Jesus long to be devoted to the church. They long to be devoted into it. And in, in, in some way, uh, ladies and gentlemen, one, uh, one of the things I'm concerned about is that the church is, 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 is it's almost become cool and hip to claim to be a follower of Jesus and not be deeply immersed in a local church. And yet that's not what we see in these scriptures. What do these people do? Man, they devoted themselves to it. They sp- they gave as people had need. They spent time daily in prayer. They spent time with another. They did life together. We could spend a whole time in sermon talking about the end part of what is the result of these 3,000 people coming. They spent time in worship. They spent time in prayer. They spent time in fellowship. And this was a daily occurrence. So these people, being in part of a local church, isn't this idea of kind of skipping around, but it's saying, man, I am committing to this mission, to this vision, to the life and doing life with these people. And sometimes it's going to be easy and sometimes it's going to be really messy. But I'm committed to the proclamation of the gospel, which should be the first and foremost thing that you look at within a church and say, man, I am committed to being with these people and to sharing that gospel message. And yet for some reason, man, it has become, like I said, extremely hip and cool to be all about Jesus and be on fire for Jesus and yet not be committed to this. And yet that is not what we see in Scripture. Unstoppable God is all about the church and the proclamation of this powerful gospel. Church, we are no longer in a season of wait, but we are in a season of go. Guess who's going to build this church? Jesus. I don't think it's because Peter had a perfect sermon. I mean, I, I, honestly, myself, I, w- I would love to stand up in front of 50,000 people and say the gospel, preach the gospel, and at the end of that say, man, 3,000 people came to know Jesus. That'd be great. But any time that we think it's us, we've totally missed it. Any time that we think that we can build Mission Church, guess what? We've already failed. Anytime us as pastors think that we can, man, sometimes I get frustrated because, man, I think if I would have just said this, you would have gotten it. If I would have just prayed a little bit more, if I hadn't have had that toaster strudel before I came, if I would have fasted, and then come, then the Shekinah glory of God would have fell in the room and totally transformed all of us. That's me trying to do something to make God move. Guess what? You know what God does? He does as He pleases. And if God's going to grow this church, and I'm not talking about just numerically, I'm more concerned about the depths of our hearts in His likeness. It is only going to be, not because of something that we can conjure up, but it is going to be because of the grace in God is poured upon us in a certain specific way that it caused that to happen. In the words of Tim Keller, I work very hard to write a good sermon, but only God can make it great. And that is the same of this church. 
we're going to work really hard to make this the best possible church and being reflective of what the scripture says about it. We're going to make it and try to do our very best to make it as good as possible. But I want you to know only God can make it great because who's great? God. God. God's church is going to outlive, in the words of Dr. Moore, Russell Moore, God's um, church is going to outlive the Southern Baptist Convention. It's going to outlive the Methodist church, the Presbyterian church, the Catholic church. It's going to outlive every mega church that you can name, every small congregation that you can name. It's going to outlive mission church because God is concerned about the church, the body of believers. And this is so important for us to come and, and to realize Mission Church, may we be deeply encouraged where God has brought us because 2,000 years later we are here in a part of that redemptive history that took place on the day of Pentecost and that same spirit that was there is the same spirit if you are a believer in Jesus that rests within us in our very hearts and our lives to empower us to do what? To proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why we're called Mission Church that we should be about proclaiming the gospel because that's what we see the early church doing. And if you don't have a relationship with this Jesus, may God save you today. If you need somebody to talk to you about that today, then please see myself or Pastor Justin either during our time of response today or even after this worship service is over. We would love to discuss what it means to follow after Jesus, but I want you to know I can't save you. You can't save yourself. This is the work of an almighty God. And when you come to realize who you are, how wretched you are, and compare that to him, you realize how low you are, and yet how amazing he is that he would love you in that lowliness. If you're a believer in Jesus, may we come together as Mission Church, as brothers and sisters in Christ. May we worship Him fervently. May we become undignified in our worship as we behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And may we have an open-handed idea in our congregation that, Lord Jesus, we close our hands on nothing except for the truth of Your Word and what it says, but in all other areas we extend and write an open blank check and You can do with us and our lives whatever you see fit to do can that be our prayer can this be that church if you would stand with me and let's pray together lord jesus we thank you god for this opportunity